I planned to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing, rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. Today at Ditch Digger CEO, we're, we're welcoming my, my friend Stefan. Uh, Stefan is an amazing entrepreneur and uh, great, great culture guy, um, great history, right? From coming from another country. Um, to be here and, and build business here. All the things he's done, is, it's, a, it's an amazing story of, uh, of passion, success, and, and everything else we're going to hear here today. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm really excited too. So, so Stefan, welcome, buddy. Welcome to Ditch Digger CEO. Thank you. We are excited to have you, man. So am I. It's great. It's and, great. Uh, I've listened to some of your podcasts. Very interesting. Oh, have you? Good. Uh-huh. Is what's interesting? Is it the is it Gary or um, is it the, the well <laughs> the guest more you than me? You. Yeah, you know Gary. I he's he always has less to say. Yeah, so always interesting. Not, yeah, and I mean he's he's built an awesome business. It's so. not not tough to get that's, me going. That's, that's for sure when it comes to talking, right? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but Stefan, uh, you know, I met you a few years ago, and, and we had a lot of mutual friends. Still, we have a lot of mutual friends, and I've heard of, heard everybody else talking about about this cool dude, Stefan, and uh, uh, the, the the things he was, you were doing back then. And, and I got the opportunity to meet you, and I said, all right, I get it. I get why everybody's excited to be friends with this guy. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, your your uh, your story is awesome, and uh, I, I, we basically want you to kind of tell it, right? I mean, yeah. basically from. You know, you're, where, where you where you uh, got your work ethic from, your upbringing, right? If you can start right from the right from the start, kind of as a kid, right. your your life as a kid, and where you how, who, how you became who you are. Well, so I was born and raised in in Paris, and uh, my so I have two sisters. My parents owned. So, so the so the accent is real. Is I, real. I, I always thought it was fake, but but it is real. cute, just so you know. Well, uh, it used to be like the Inspector Clouseau, but uh, <laughs> now now it is better. Because I have spent uh, 30 years here, so. But now I learned English early because my parents um, had a uh, an international shipping company called Rambo International, Rambo being a family name that my grandfather had started in Paris in 31. Wow. He died in the Second World War. My dad took over the company when he was young. He was about 19, 1920. Wow. And he grew it with my mom 
So my dad was the CEO and the owner, and my mom was the CFO. And they grew the business to about 500 employees. And how so, big, how big was it when your when your grandfather uh, uh, he got killed in World War II? Yeah, and um, he was a pilot. And wow. so he, you know, the company was not that big, but it was very profitable. He was very successful. It was a very interesting story for so another a little, day. A but little few million dollar company or something like that per year. Or? Yeah, but you know, he had his own airplane already. Uh-huh. He was in his thirties. He was driving a Delay, and he had a property with a landing strip. I mean, it was quite wow. something in the thirties. Wow! So all that disappeared after he died, and uh, the war, and all that. And my dad basically had to, you know, start over with my mom and rebuild the business. So, you know, that's the environment in which I was raised, uh, upper middle class, Catholic boarding school, very strict upbringing, strict parents. Mm -hmm. You didn't get anything you didn't deserve. Um, Not like today when the the last one gets a medal, you know. I barely got a medal if I finish first. (laughs) That was, you know. Um, kick, maybe a kick in the butt because you didn't win by enough of a margin. Probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but I worked. You know, I worked every summer in the uh, in the business. You know, I mostly played tennis and chased girls and worked in the family business to learn how to load, unload containers, and you know, do documentation, deal with customs. How old were you? Uh, how old were you when you first had your first experiences around the business? Probably about thirteen, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, I got all the all the shitty jobs. You know, whenever my friends would come to the the company and say, you know, we're looking for Stefan Rambo, the receptionist would usually say, oh yeah, he's he's at the end of the warehouse where they are sweeping. <laughs> you know, th- those are the jobs. But anyway, so um, you know, I guess I was lucky in a sense to know that I would always do this. Uh-huh. Um, you know, international logistics and. And eventually, you know, when I completed my education in France, I did some internships around the world, you know, a few months in Germany, uh, in England, and then I came to the States, which was supposed to be, you know, for a year or two, and it un- and ended up being 30. Wow. And, and there- I just couldn't leave this country. It's just such a great country. Yeah, and then, and so. and why did you? Were you, were you? Was it one of these things where you left to to learn stuff outside the family business and then come yeah. back? That was the idea. Yeah, my parents always thought that I needed to make my mistakes uh-huh. elsewhere and learn from others. Yeah, you know, instead of of just being a, you know, a daddy's boy from day one, mm-hmm. uh, which never really appealed to me anyway. Yeah, I wanted to do my my own thing. So, came here. Um, to, so in our business, when you don't have an office of your own overseas, you need to have an agent. So an agent sure. is the equivalent of a distributor. Okay. So it's someone who would receive the goods on your behalf, clear customs, um, collect the funds from the customer overseas, and then remit them to you, split profit 50-50 or whatever mm-hmm. the deal is, right? So... Uh, my family's business didn't have offices overseas, so they had agents all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I happened to just come to Rambo International's agent in Chicago. It was a small customs broker in Elgro Village. And um, after a few months, I told the, the lady who ran it that I didn't think she was running it the right way, and, and I had a plan. And so I got fired. Mm. And I thought maybe I should go back to France and go back to the family business and 
and just well, work you, there. So you got fired for just saying, yeah, I don't think you're running the right way. I think there's a better way to run this. Yeah. And uh, Yeah, but sure. I was in my early 20s, so <laughs> that was not acceptable. Uh, it's acceptable in my organization. I love people I, questioning the status quo. Yeah, well, that, that wasn't the culture here. No, it wasn't to her. So my dad said, you're not coming back. You're going to find me another agent. Wow. And you're going to build the trade between France and Chicago. And then I'll decide when you know, it's acceptable for you to come back and, and enter the family business. So I found this little company called Phoenix International in the How, in, how old were you at this point? In the mid-80s. Stefan? 22. Okay. So, um, and then I started to work. Um, you know, there was, a, there was an understanding that I would stay, you know, a year or two years um, and see how international trade is done here on this side of the Atlantic and, and then develop, you know, the, we didn't have a lot of, there was not a lot of competition between Paris and Chicago. You know, a lot of our competitors traded between, you know, France and New York and mm -hmm. France in LA. And okay. Chicago was not a very well-known market. And so we thought it could be a, an interesting niche market for us and for Rambo International to develop ocean freight and air freight consolidations, you know, every week, several times a week for the air freight. And so, but I studied in operations here. You know, it was, the language was challenging for me. Um, I think my German at the time was better than my English. Wow. But I haven't spoken German in about 30 years, so that's, that's gone. But, um, so, you know, that, that was tough, the, the geography, the language. Mm -hmm. um, was, that, was the name of that company? Phoenix oh, International. Phoenix. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, operations, and then I went into sales, and um, I became the uh, top producer pretty quickly of the company. We only had one office. It was in uh, in Algrove Village, and it was a small company. We were, you know, twenty or thirty. And, uh, twenty, thirty people. Employees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. And um, so. After a while, I was, you know, each salesperson had an out-of-town territory, mm -hmm. and mine was uh, Michigan and, and uh, St. Louis. So I would go once a month to those markets and see customers and, and try and get their business. And um, I had some good success in St. Louis and, and Kansas City, and one day I asked the owner if I could maybe open up an office in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And... Um, my father thought it was a crazy idea because I, he considered I knew nothing, mm -hmm. and uh, which he was probably right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and the owner Bill thought, you know, why not? He had family in St. Louis. We didn't have an office there. We didn't have offices anywhere but uh -huh. Chicago. And uh, so he said, sure, you know, let's let's do it. So, you know, really, that's kind of how it it all started it was you know this i wanted to have my own thing you know if it was not going to be you know eventually i would go back to the family business but i wanted to kind of have my yeah. own thing here in earn, america earn your own stripes here yeah and so that's kind of how it started and you know when when i look back and i and i think of you know forks in in my life mm -hmm. you know key decisions that was that was the first one that was, I think, significant because instead of just working in the Chicago office or doing other things, I started with you know one employee who I hired. It was my first employee. She still works for the company today. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, 
Her name is Kathleen. And um, so, you know, she did the operations. I did the sales. You know, very much like you, very aggressive, hitting the street, seeing as many customers as possible. And uh, we felt we had, you know, some superior products in, in many respects. And, you know, we were non-asset based. All we did was international air freight and ocean freight and customs brokerage and, you know, supply chain management. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't called supply chain management in the 80s. You know, that's a fancy term today, yeah. but uh, <laughs> everything's becoming very fancy in terms of, you know, terms. But um, so, you know, that's that's where it started. And, no, and this is really before so much technology. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a, way before all this, all this uh, 3PL, third-party logistics world we have today. People right? were not even talking about, you know, the term logistics really applied at the time for big warehouses that stored, mm -hmm. managed, and distributed freight. Okay. Today, people use logistics for international transportation too, for truck brokerage, mm -hmm. for anything that has to do with transportation, whether domestic or international. So um, within three years, we became bigger. The St. Louis office became bigger and more profitable than the Chicago headquarters. Wow, wow. three years. Yeah, and that's... You know, then I opened up in Kansas City and, you know, other parts of the country. And in 91 or two, I told the, uh, the two other owners that it was time for me to go back to France, to the family <laughs> business. And this and, is after like six years? Yeah, just about, yeah. And, uh, and they said, well, what, what would it take for you to, you know, commit to stay here a little bit longer? And I said, you know, equity. And that's kind of how that conversation started. And, and eventually I became, you know, the third owner of the company. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And um, at a- In your late 20s. At a young age, yeah, wow. 27, 28. So in those, in those first six years of you growing a business, I guess what would probably be some, you called it forks in a row, that you feel like maybe some entrepreneurs today, if they were listening to this, that they like, hey, well, you know, this is kind of from my experience, if you were just kind of, especially in, I guess logistics or whatever we will call it today. Right, right. Um, watch out for this, or you know, just from my experience, you know, these are some things that you all might want to implement now, so you can scale like you did in in basically six years. I mean, I think that's a kudos to you to have two people who led it to say, "Hey, listen, we would give you equity to stay here because you're just so valuable." Right. Well, you know, I think when when I see certain businesses today and startups, uh, because I work with some of them, that uh, you know, think of raising money and they start with beautiful offices and nice furniture and because, because that's what they like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were on all four building our furniture three days before we opened up in San Luis, right? It was some cheap Ikea stuff, the cheapest <laughs> stuff we could find. And, you know, I put it together myself with a screwdriver and, you know, our offices were very basic and very small, mm -hmm. and we watched our expenses very carefully. And I think, you know, that's kind of lost nowadays. People want to have the beautiful office, the beautiful mm -hmm. stuff. You need to raise capital, we need to raise capital. Ra right? raise they raise capital, capital and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden they're choking because, you know, they have to uh, perform under great pressure, pay back, uh, mm -hmm. The return might might not be what the investors expected, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we didn't have outside investors. We were very thrifty. 
we were very determined, we were very passionate, and we just worked relentlessly. And you know, the, the salesperson I hired, the first salesperson I hired in St. Louis, uh, his name was, was Ed Fisher, uh, was one of the best in, in, in town. And I think, you know, he was about 10 years older than, than I was, he still is, but you know, I, <laughs> I lied about my age because I felt I was too young to attract the talent that I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but we became, you know, a very tight group of hardworking people who really enjoyed to be with each other. And, you know, we just loved winning. And uh, we started to build some great consolidations directly. You know, we did things that, that nobody else did. Uh, we had direct consolidations from Taiwan, Hong Kong, Shanghai, directly into St. Louis. You know, wow. everybody else had them into LA and Chicago, and then it was trucked to St. Louis. Hmm. We brought the freight all the way to St. Louis. So we saved like a week in transit time, wow. you know, for an ocean freight shipment, which is considerable. You know, it's 25%. Yeah. And, you know, in air freight, we were open on Sundays to clear through customs and deliver the freight on Monday morning while our competitors would deliver on Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, it was constantly, you know, we're trying to, you know, as Gary always mentions about his business here, you know, we do this better and we do it faster and this is why. And that's what, you know, our business, we never viewed our business as being rocket science, but we just try to, you know, be quicker and better and, and more reliable um, than, than our competitors. We, you know, still today, there are 4,000 international shipping companies mm. in the country. I mean... Wow, in the U.S. Yeah, 300 in, you know, around O'Hare alone. How it's many were there back then, though? About 4,000. 4, Same. Wow. It change. Just yeah, and in St. Louis, there were about 30 at the time. They just operate totally different today than they did back then, but yeah. there's still a similar amount. Yeah. In and out of business, maybe 50% of them not there anymore yeah. or whatever from then. But Yeah, and, and, you know, technology plays a much greater role mm-hmm. today, as you said, you know, as it did then. And, you know, then it was more how great are your people, mm-hmm. how great are your processes, is your billing accurate? You know, that's always been an issue in our business, yeah. you know, <laughs> little fees everywhere, little stuff, and yeah. customers would get upset with billing. And yeah. So, what, what's, you know, what was it, we talked about wins, like you guys were having a lot of wins and, you're, and you had a, a team that would, you know, understood how to, how to win. What was a win back then that... that uh, Just getting a new customer. Uh, so, so from, you know, one of, one of our key markets, because we would leverage all our customers, our margins were, were good. It was important to focus on trade lanes. You know, it was really all about focus. We didn't just get, we wouldn't be that interested in getting a customer that imported from Buenos Aires, you know, in Argentina to San Luis, because we were just, we were not that good mm-hmm. from that origin. We didn't have anything significant so you stayed, to You offer. stayed in your lane. We you, stayed in our lane. And you focused on that all the time. You Very knew, early you knew, on. Your, you knew your lane and yeah. focused on your lane. It I was guess Europe. Just, yep. It was Europe and, and it was taken, Asia. Didn't, take, didn't get taken off into another lane because you thought you could uh, compete at that one too. You said, hey, this we're great at. His we're yeah. going to stay great until you discovered something different. Yeah. And, you know, I think we did that till until 2012, until we sold the business. You know, I, I was one of my favorite books was always uh, Nuts from Herb Keller, the CEO of, uh, of Southwest. And it was all about you know, that focus. Continue. It's called to, nuts? Yeah, because that's what they serve you when you sit oh, in, a, in, I know that. in a Southwest plane. You yeah. know, they give you nuts. Yeah. And so the title of that book was Nuts. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a remarkable business book because 
it was really the story of a man who had built an exceptional company by just doing what you said, you know, doing more of what you're great at, mm. as opposed mm. to constantly, you know, McDonald's buying Chipotle, they realized that was really dumb, right? And, because And Redbox. Yeah, and, <laughs> because it's insignificant compared to yeah. the business they're really good at. And, you know, at Phoenix, people always said, why don't you do domestic? Why don't you do this? No. We did Ocean Freight, Air Freight, mm -hmm. International Customs Brokerage for 30 years. And, you know, we became the largest um, private company in that sector in America. And we hit a billion dollars. And it was... You hit, you hit a what? A billion. Wow. That's awesome. So when we sold in 2012, we, we were at a billion dollars. But, you know, we... We focused on the Midwest, then the coasts, then we opened up um, in Asia in 95. Um, I spearheaded that in 95 with um, our agent in Taiwan and, and Shanghai at the time. And there was another fork. It was a big decision. And then Europe in the late 90s. So those were really our big markets, you know, Asia, Europe. So this isn't like a huge market cap. It's it's a it's a big market cap. It's in the billions, right? But it's not like I mean, when I, when I think about freight, I hear you know three hundred fifty billion, four hundred billion, whatever. This is a, this is a, a market market space within that space. Of is it a ten billion, twenty billion dollar market space or? Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a very large market. It's okay. one hundred fifty billion. Okay, 150 I mean, it, yeah, it's a really. Uh, I think maybe today Globally. it might be about two hundred. 200 billion global in the US. Oh, just the US. Yeah, it's a it's a very very large that's, uh, that's awesome. trade. So very fragmented also then. Extremely fragmented. Yeah. So, well that's why you have companies today like XPO, you know, Brian Jacobs from the East Coast uh, who starts XPO and and he, you know, he buys companies and um, leverages their strength and you know, put them all on one platform and mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera, and and he's building you know, I think he's got a $11 billion company already, and he started six or seven years ago. Right. So, as I said, 4,000 in this country, and, and you know, the top 30, um, you know, represent maybe 25% or 30%, you know, of the market. So, okay. um, I'm sure some of those numbers have changed, but, you know, what's interesting is, so we sold our company to, to C.H. Robinson eventually in, in 2012, and, you know, Robinson, with Phoenix combined, only had 1% market share. Mm. And C.H. Robinson today is a $16 billion, you know, Fortune sure. 250 company. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's serious, yeah. you know, it's big numbers. And so, yeah, it's, I think it's a fascinating uh, industry and space. And, you know, I'm so glad in a way my grandfather got us started. I mean, obviously I'm, you know, I didn't, get involved with the family business. Eventually, when my dad saw that I was staying here, he sold the business in 93 mm -hmm. to, a, to a Swedish conglomerate. But, you know, it, it all started with Paul Rambo, my grandfather, who who started a logistics company in 31 in Paris. Became, became part, part, part of your bloodline. Yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. So I'm the, th you know, I'm the third generation. And... Uh, but third, you know, neat, the neat thing is third generation, but but you know, as it did aspire, to, aspired to be here eventually, be in mm -hmm. your own thing eventually, and it became your own thing. How, how, how did the partnership work out with the two partners you had? Where did that go to before 2012 and all that? So that's that's a good question because one of the two partners eventually retired uh, in the early 2000s, 
And so I told you about 95 when we opened up in Asia. That was, I think that was probably the most sig significant leap forward Got for it. us in 30 years um, because Asia was already our biggest market. That was the market I was involved with the most. I was going to Asia almost every other month, mm -hmm. spending a lot of time there. We had become a market leader from Taiwan, Hong Kong, Shanghai, um, Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, to, to the States. Those were all imports. And um, one day in 1995, I got a phone call from, from my agent who says, hey, uh, things are not well here with the owner and uh, we're thinking of leaving and we're going to open up our own company. Wow. And we'd like you to be our agent, to remain our agent. And I said, wait a minute, let me, I'll be right there. <laughs> so I'm in St. Louis at the time and the guy who's calling me is in Taiwan. So, you know, I got dressed, packed my bag and got a ticket. And, uh, and I was in Taiwan the next day. And basically we, over the following two, three weeks, we put a plan together. Um, a lot of which was on, on napkins. <laughs> One night at a restaurant called the Portofino in Taipei. <laughs> and it was napkins, we've kept them somewhere. And we put a plan together of you know the, all the cash we needed. You know, we, we were not gonna seek you know, outside funds either. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the guy I was with was Andy, uh, who was you know, the key in Asia, our key contact. And basically we decided, um, without me even talking to my partners in the US because I thought it would actually frighten them. And they were not as familiar with the Asian trade as I was. Mm -hmm. And the relationship with Andy in Asia was mine, essentially, so I trusted him. We put together a plan to open up Phoenix International in Asia. So in, in June of 95, we opened up in Taipei, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Shaman in Singapore in one month. Wow. And wow. that put us on the map. Um, in, your partners bought into in this Asia. eventually then? Or? So when I <clears throat> came back to Chicago and, and we spoke about it at first. Brought were, your napkins yeah, with you? Yeah, yeah, they were like, we're not doing this. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, okay. no, it's way too risky. And, uh, but eventually they, uh, they came around. But, but one of the two partners eventually retired, and we brought Andy as uh, our partner. So okay. really the, the partnership after that. Is this an, after an, an that, Asian uh, gentleman mm -hmm. named Andy? Yeah, uh, okay. born and Seems raised like in Taipei. So it sounds like an American name. Very good. Well, you know, Asians, his <laughs> real name was Jen Wen, Jen yeah. Wen Wong, uh -huh. but his U.S. name, name was Andy Wong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> they, all, they all had that because, they, you know, if you did business with America, it was needed, not that easy to be short, Jen Wen. Shorten that name up. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me, how do you spell that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, um, so I, I, you, I mean, in my mind, I would think it's pretty risky to, you know, oh yeah, you know, Lucia actually start this business internationally. Yeah, don't worry about my partners. I, I'll take care of that. How did you get them to buy in? Because I would think that caused a lot of friction, and I'm pretty sure it did at that time. Yeah, it did. Yes, young, and young, and young punk partner, right? So, yeah, you know, I got this deal done in Asia. It's right here on these napkins. Let me show you. Yeah, no, and they were, you know, threats and this and that and, and arguments. And But, you know, I told them, look, Andy is our friend. We've worked with him for years in Asia. We trust him. And that's always the biggest issue mm, when trust. you're going to do business mm. around the world in general. But I would say particularly in places like China, yeah. India. South America, you know, there's a, there are lots of 
Shady characters. Yeah. Anywhere. Thieves and, and yeah. unethical people yeah. around the world, period. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we had two things going in our favor. We, we knew and trusted Andy. I did. And we controlled all our business because mm. imports from Asia is paid by the importer in America. And that is the party that de- decides who oh, will handle okay. their supply chain. Gotcha. So we could move our business around to whoever, right? A lot of our competitors were saying, well, you're using Phoenix International, but they don't even have their own offices overseas. So you know the service is not going to be that great. It's not them. It's Mm -hmm. an agent. Sure. So, you know, it was important for us to start opening up our own entities so we could control the supply chain ourselves on both sides. Sure. We didn't lose one customer in the transition. Um, We almost ran out of cash the following year because it was just too much in yeah. one year. Um, that was a big test, a big stress test in 96, 97. Um, I think we only made that year like barely a million dollars. Um, in business that it was now, what, what type of revenues? Uh, uh, we probably, <coughs> you know, if you included Asia and, and removed all the, you know, the, the double billing, I don't know, it mm-hmm. probably was 400, you know, three, 400 million bucks. Right. We just had, to make you know, three, too fast. three tenths of one percent, basically. Yeah, yeah, we had grown too fast, but we almost—I felt—we almost didn't have a choice. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, time would would show us that you, you we were the, right. You saw a huge opportunity in front of you, and yeah. the investment was was perfect. Yeah, I mean, and by you know, by the time we sold the business, yeah, by the time we sold the business, um, I think you know, China represented forty percent of our wow. you know EBITDA. So, it, so it was the you know, it was the right call. Mm-hmm. But there was another fork you know, uh, an important one, opening up St. Louis, deciding to stay in America, mm-hmm. and having the courage to do Asia in 95. I think those were the three, you know. The I, biggest I, pivots in I, your yeah. career. Yeah, and I think sometimes people make the wrong decision and and it just doesn't end well for them. Mm-hmm. And I always say, you know, there was also, it was a lot of instincts, but it's also a lot of luck. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you can never forget about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I was lucky in many instances. You're lucky to have these opportunities, but but also um, sharp enough to take advantage of these opportunities. Yeah, you know, I think I think luck is part of everything we do in our lives, yeah. but also opportunities that we take advantage of are are are, the, are huge, right? And, yeah. and if you could define luck, just because I think a lot of people feel like luck is like, oh, well, you're lucky. That's why you got what you got. But I think, at least how I look at it, you know, I, I call it, you know, preparation. You know, luck it could be preparation where opportunity met. Like you were more prepared for it. So you know, You're could right. you define what luck is so people can understand? There's a difference between lucky like the lottery, and yeah. you know, opportunity that gives you the luck that you look talking about. Well, first of all, you know the the luck to be born in a family like that that enabled me to even know about this space and to have this opportunity to come to America. I think. That's tremendous already. Of course, mm-hmm. I would have said, no, I'm not going to America. I'm staying in <laughs> yeah. Paris. I love it here. Yeah, if you knew nothing about it. Yeah, exactly. But so I think, yeah, it was, you know, some opportunities that, that were there in front of me and, and, uh, and, I, and I grabbed them. You know, Angie could have gone south on us. Uh, the business could have gone the other way, gone to the competition. Um, you know, we could potentially not have survived 1996 when we had no cash in our bank account and we each had to mortgage everything we own and Mm -hmm. sell everything we own and put money back in the business i mean these were very trying times that turned out to be very good for us because i think it made us a better company afterwards 
But, you know, maybe I don't know, maybe, you know, because of my upbringing, I was, uh, you know, I made some decisions one way that I otherwise would have made another way. Well, and, so. and, and you, for, for you to be, you know, you're the younger of the partners at that point, right? Oh, Two yeah. other partners yeah. older than you? Yeah, by about 10 years. So for you to be risking and, and putting everything on the line at that point, right? Boy, that, that take a lot of guts. But for them to be, be buying into this young this partner that's that's right. pushing them to Asia and all that too had to be stressful for them as well. Right? Yeah, it was. It, it strained the relationship for a little bit. But, you know, we were always a, a tight group. And I mean, imagine by the time we sold the business, we had been together about 27, 28 years. I think that's longer than most marriages. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, way way longer than most. Way longer, <laughs> right, <laughs> like about exactly. ten times longer than most. <clears throat> so yeah. Okay, so so when you, when this uh, when and this was going on, I mean, uh, what were the what are the big differentiators you were able to offer that that maybe a competitor couldn't to, to have to, to to have the guts to go to the, these other markets that you, as you did? Yeah, I think uh, you know products started to evolve, vendor management programs. You know, so imagine a porter, uh, an importer here like. Uh, you know, Hon Furniture, Pampered Chef, I'm using, you know, Chicago companies, Caterpillar, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. companies like that. They have lots of John Deere. You know, they have lots of vendors throughout China and Asia. And I think, you know, a problem uh, was that they would ship directly, you know, they wouldn't import directly from those vendors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were proposing at the time, a little bit ahead of our competition, vendor management, which is that we would really start to control their purchasing and their supply chain. So we would get EDI messages from them that would show us all their purchases. Mm -hmm. We would contact all their suppliers and we would start organizing the shipping and the loading of containers by combining that freight together. We, we saved some of those importers, you know, 20, 30% on their supply wow. chain. It was significant and a lot of it was you know, digitally done, uh, you know, with our platform behind the scene. But a lot of it was, you know, a lot of uh, manual work at Origins, you know, in our warehouses of, of uh, physical consolidation. So you focus on solving the problems, really. Exactly. Solving the problems of, the, of, yeah. of both sides of this, this thing, right? Yeah. Which is huge. Yeah, and they could see almost live, um, you know, what we had in our facilities overseas. And they could tell us, ship this, don't ship that because there's another big purchase order that's going to come and it will make for a perfect 40-foot container as opposed to a 20-foot container. So, you know, a lot of those programs, we felt that we had to be there physically, have our own people. Mm -hmm. um, we built a very strong relationship with some of those vendors overseas because we felt it was important too. So, because very often, you know, the, the, the Chinese vendor would say, well, I called Phoenix International, but nobody answered or... I asked them to pick up my freight, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, they would always point yeah. the finger at somebody else. So we felt it was important to yeah. build relationships on both sides of the Pacific. And did those relationships grow into other things too? I got to believe if you're building a relationship with that, with the uh, the, the manufacturer on the one side, they ship the to pond, other importers. Right? Yeah. Now you're finding about other. And they want to work with you. Yeah. Exactly. So no, that, absolutely. So those relationships grew because of that, probably, huh? Yeah. No, you got that right. I mean, awesome. it was. Uh, Worked out well. Tell us about the culture. I mean, you, you had to build a company with good culture, values, and such. And then, and then, if you could tell us about the culture you had here in America, and then, and then how that culture traveled when you went to Asia, and what they look like. Did you keep it the same? Did you, did you have to <laughs> Even the Phoenix name was the Phoenix name a good name there compared to here? Well, you know. Yeah, 
Good questions. You've you've done this before. <laughs> oh, I've, I've heard stories. He actually took them out of my uh, notebook. Out of your book? Yeah, he took them out of a notebook. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, the you know the Phoenix was a good name. I mean, it's rising from your ashes, uh-huh. and um, so that was a that was a really good name in uh, in Mandarin. As far as the culture was concerned, you know, we we had a very strong culture at at Phoenix. Here we had, you know, we always thought. Uh, us partners thought we had a lot to do with it, but um, you know, I think our VP of HR, uh, Laurie, who uh, who actually works at Medline Industries nowadays. Medline. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Medline. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the Mills. So um, she she was like uh, you know that lady at at Southwest Airline. I don't remember her name anymore. She was the right arm of Herb Keller, the CEO. Mm-hmm. She was the president, and she was the one behind the culture of Southwest. And Laurie at Phoenix was was a little bit that way as well. We, you know, we we had a very much a uh, a family type culture. Um, we had a, a lower turnover than most anyone in our industry. I think we hired really well. You know, I always remember the sentence: we we hired for attitude and trained for skills. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. You know, we were very we we hired slowly and fired swiftly. Although that sounds really bad, but I wish more businesses would do that because there's nothing worse than keeping the wrong employee on both sides of the fence. Yeah, the employee and the employer. It's no good for either one, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we had a strong uh, sense of you know. I was as I was waiting for you. I was looking at your values on the wall. You know, there were our values. There were, a, you know, a strong sense of ethics, hardworking. Uh, I don't know if being passionate is a value, but that's something that we viewed as something extremely important. Yeah, we do too. And um, we invested a ton in uh, training. We had, by the time we sold the business, we had five training centers in the country, which was a big expense. Yeah. But we wanted to do our own training. You know, shipping is complicated. Our system was complicated. And you know our employees wanted to get better, and they wanted to make a difference. Mm-hmm. By the time we sold the business, you know the average tenure of each person on the management team was 17 years. Wow! In a 32-year-old company, I mean Robinson That's couldn't awesome. believe it. So, you know there was a lot of friendship and taking care of your neighbor, and mm-hmm. um, you know we were very good at that. We partied a lot when we were younger <laughs> celebrated but we were at work at eight the next morning uh-huh. um and we just you know we had a good time as we were building this i always say mm-hmm. the statement where there's unity there's community and obviously exactly. that's kind of where you which seems like what you all had so yeah and something else we did early on and that was bill's idea to, to make the company a, an esop an employee stock ownership plan type company so about 10 percent of the company was owned by um our you know, more senior um, employees. So by the time we sold the business, we made a bunch of, created a bunch of millionaires, mm-hmm. right? Um, and these were people that didn't expect it. They were so thankful. They were, you know, happy to be part of the company and have helped it grow. And uh, we were very proud to be able to to see them get that financial reward, which, you know, very often employees are left behind when, yeah. the ownership of a company sells. So that wasn't the case for us. Awesome. 
And then, and then uh, in the sale, you know, was there a big cultural shift, or was C.H. Robinson have some of the same values, and then did they fit well, and and did most of the people stay? Yeah, um, you know, Ray and I talk very often about you know what what to do when you sell your business, and and you talk about you know if if the cultures don't match, the sale will be a flop. There's mm. there's no doubt about it. We, you know, luckily there were. A lot of companies that wanted to buy us, so we we got to pick, and the culture was particularly important for us. Geographically, the fact that we were Chicago-based and Robinson was Minnesota-based, that was good too. CEO, great guy. He just he announced his retirement last week. He'll he'll stay as, as the chairman, but we got along great. John Weehoff. Um, when we sold to them, they were nine billion, right? Very strong culture at Robinson. Um, just very good company and yeah bigger so mm -hmm. that was you know there was a change for our people um, things took longer to happen sometimes particularly you know our benefits were better than theirs and you know <laughs> things like that and employees look at that sure um, so but I think you know by and large it worked out well you know something that we did that I think is really important when you sell your business was to you know, to give retention bonuses to your key people. Hmm. We had zero departure. You know, awesome. we, we made people understand that they were very important for the future mm -hmm. of, of the, the combined entity. I stayed for another three years, so essentially there were no change for our people, right? right? And we had retention bonuses. That was an added incentive, uh, you know, for the f next two years. Um, so, you know, people would give it a shot, right? And yeah. they they liked it. So they're part today of a, you know, $16 billion organization. And uh, that's more powerful, maybe a little safer because mm -hmm. it's a lot bigger. Right. Um, you know, it depends on what matters yeah, to that, people. Yeah. yeah. But. Uh, and and do you feel like the, the, the big entity like that has the the ability or does this, you know, not all do and most don't, but a big entity like this has the ability to, to change and the ability to, to, to pivot in and all that like you used to. I mean, that's probably the thing I think about the most when a big entity takes on a, a smaller, more more nimble right, yeah. business. You know, I had uh, a month before the sale was, was final, I had uh, dinner with John and he said, you know, you got to remember, you know, you look full of, you know, energy and passionate and all that. and and you guys have made some crazy decisions that turned out great over time. Uh, but you gotta remember, you know, if you compare Robinson and Phoenix, we're like this big ship going down the ocean. There you go. It takes us a long time, you know, to turn even five degrees. Mm -hmm. And you're like driving this little red car. Yeah. And you, you know, you can do a 180 whenever you feel like it. And it was, you know, when it came to certain things, it was, it was a good analogy. Uh, things didn't move very fast in some respects, but we were the biggest acquisition they made in 100 years to date. It's wow. still, we are still their biggest acquisition. It was about 700 million bucks. Mm -hmm. And they were committed, and, and that was something that was really important to, to us and to me. They were committed to letting us run our business the way we successfully had for the past 30 years. Right. You know, John said, we've, we've bought lots of companies before you, and we've managed to wreck them. <laughs> so this is the first time we're actually putting the guy, the CEO of the company we buy, in charge. Wow. And 
that tells a lot about the confidence they had in you, which is awesome. Yeah, and you know, as I said, John was was just a very, very savvy CEO and, and chairman. So. Tell, tell us on, on the way up to, to this point, you know, what, who are the mentors? I mean, you had your dad, right? Your grandfather's story, your dad, right? I mean, your grandfather, number one, a, her, a hero, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your, your, your father, who's an entrepreneur and, and, and again, a you know, business builder, right? Tell, tell me about a few of, the, the, few of the, the mentors you look upon as this is who, who's, who I wanted to be and this is who I, you know, I became maybe in a certain sense. Yeah, I would say both my parents. I think they did a very good job running the business. Mm-hmm. Completely different. My dad was more like you and I, you know, very aggressive. Let's go and build this and create a new service and mm-hmm. get some more business. And my mom was more the HR and finance part. Um, you know, they, they were inspirations. Uh, my partner, Bill, who was, you know, my boss before he became my partner. Um, you know, what always amazed me was it was crazy of of him to tell me, you know, at such an early age, oh, you want to open up in St. Louis? Let's do it in a year. Yeah, okay, yeah. does that work for you? I'm like, sure. <laughs> and that's crazy, right? Yeah. But but that's America. Mm-hmm. And if I had worked for a hundred different people, they would have said, oh, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> Relax, young man. You're 20-something. <laughs> what do you we'll know? We'll talk in 10 yeah, or 15 what, years. Yeah, what do you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, which certainly would have happened in Europe anyway, right? Mm. I mean... Even my dad would not have told me, yeah, open up an office in Lyon or in Lille or in Bordeaux or, mm-hmm. you know, not a chance. So I think, you know, that was very, um, you know, as I aged and I had more people working for me, uh, I never considered that being too young was a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's so not European. Yeah. You know, you need to... Either your pedigree needs to be this or your age or your accomplishments or whatever, right? Uh-huh. But, you know, Bill was like, let's do it. And for me, that was that was America. You know, it mm-hmm. was, let's take a chance. The worst thing that can happen is that we fail. And mm-hmm. and I think I took that with me for the till today. Um, I You know, when I do something, I never think that it can fail. Yeah. Which is probably the dumbest thing, but I've got that st- the same stupid, you know what I mean? stupid mentality. But yeah. if you work hard, it seems to work out very often, anyway. Yeah, so not always. I mean, you know, you've you certainly have a lot of companies. I'm sure they've you know they've not all performed exactly the way you wanted them to. No. Okay, well, let's move on and do something else. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, yeah, that's been amazing about this country. I mean, this is. When it comes to business, this is... Yeah, talk, talk about that. I mean, you, This is the best you, place you know, in the world. You know the whole world. I mean, you've been around the world, and you've, you've done business everywhere. You, you grew up somewhere else. Yeah. Tell us about America, because I, I, I'm, I'm very passionate about our country and, and the free enterprise system. I talk about it a lot, and uh, I'd love, love to hear your, your position. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, I was in Paris last week, and, and, and I read Le Figaro, which is the biggest French paper, every morning when I wake up, and, I, and every time I'm like, ah. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Mm. I, you know, I have both citizenships. I'm French and American. I love being French. But this is, if you want to really have a chance, uh, you know, if you're half smart, uh, if you're passionate about something, if you're full of energy, you want to accomplish something, this is the place. 
you know, this is the greatest market economy. Um, you know, people can slam on capitalism all they want. Um, but this is the country of the opportunity, like we say in France. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, you know, I think I'm an example of it. You know, okay. it's, I was, nobody ever said, oh, no, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, the Asia thing, it was a calculated risk. I knew we controlled the business and the relationship, so I was not too scared. Mm -hmm. But, and that was more because, yeah, it was just big and, you know, there was, it was fair enough to have a conversation around it. Sure. But in general, I've never heard, oh, yeah, no, you can't do that. This is America. You can yeah. do anything here. Awesome. So. Absolutely, and, and uh, yeah, you're 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 an awesome example of that. And and again, I, something that, that we talk about a lot, you and I, and we on, on this uh, podcast is is that you know it, these opportunities aren't abundant across the globe. This is this is the place in the world that's developed a huge percentage of of the, of the world's innovation in the last 200 years oh, yeah. um, for one reason, mm -hmm. because of the free enterprise system. And and we you know we, we you know when you study these things and I do as much as I can I, I'm I'm always amazed at at the stories like yours and ours and, and that that come about because of that right because yeah it's a lot more challenging to open up and run a business in in Paris or you know in Shanghai as it is here mm -hmm. in many respects I mean of course it depends on the state and it depends on all sorts of things but um, I think still today it's uh, you know it's as exciting to be here. And I think the potential is at least as great today as it was, you know, in the mid to late eighties. Yep, so. I, I agree. You know, I, I always say that, you know, we just can't be complacent and, and think it's here forever, right? Yeah. If we don't protect it, it won't yeah. be, right? For our kids and our grandkids. And that's the important thing is, you know, I, I, we want to tell these stories. Q and I want to continue to tell these stories like yours because right. we want people to understand this, this it's here. It, mm -hmm. it, it's not guaranteed. Yeah, and you know, I think something that's important um so if, if if you forget about this these few months in that company where you know where i worked and i and i got sacked which by the way was a great experience there's nothing better than getting fired at least once in your life <laughs> so so you know how it feels the yeah. next time you fire someone mm -hmm. um but so i worked for the same company for 30 years right that's it mm -hmm. and and i think nowadays um, you know, I have a, a son who's uh, who's 28 and a daughter who's going to be 27, and and they too stick to you know the the companies they work for, and and uh, and they're not always looking for you know the next interview and and the next potential company. And but I see a lot of that, you know, yeah. and it's maybe it's a millennial thing, maybe maybe it's the way it will be going forward. But you know, people just think that. They have to change companies every mm -hmm. three years or five years to be paid more, to learn more, right. to, you know, and that's potentially true. But there is something to be said, I think, about sticking to one company um, and learning as much as you can in that field. Of course, it depends on the management of the company, sure. how well they treat you and what the opportunities are, but, but it's okay to 
to stay with the same company well, if you for find a while. The, if you find the right culture and the right fit, yeah. it's, it's a great thing. And and I and again, we look at resumes all the time, and and too often, you're right. Too often, it's, you see that jumping around. Right? Twenty years, twenty years, they're in they're they're in the working world, and they worked for twenty five companies yeah. or or, crazy. or fifteen years, and it's uh, ten companies. You know, when we see somebody that's been been on board in a few companies in twenty years, right, or a couple companies, or mm-hmm. one, we like, oh my gosh, this person, right, loyalty, right, uh, yeah. f- focus, mm-hmm. not jumping ship for a couple bucks more an hour, right, mm-hmm. or whatever that might be. Yeah, um, that's big because you know, our our biggest investment is is, is to find great people, right, right? and to lo- any to lose a, a a person costs us a lot of dough, right. Oh, yeah. So so if we can focus on on finding the right people. And 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 you know basically uh, nurturing their 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 livelihood with education and everything else, then then we're in great shape, right? So yeah, I, I agree. How do, how do we continue to do that? And, and and you know we're gonna we're gonna always focus on that because the cost of losing great people is huge. Once you have somebody that's a fit for your culture, boy, you don't want to lose them. And and uh, we strive to do that every day as well as uh, you did too. Yeah, turnover is a killer. That's why you know when. We learned all sorts of things actually about our business when we went through the process of of selling it. Um, but because some of the data we really hadn't looked at that closely. Um, but you know the cost of um, replacing people, mm-hmm. uh, how you know how impressed potential buyers were at how low our turnover was, and. Why is it your culture? Do you mm-hmm. overpay your people? What you know, you get all sorts yeah, of questions. Some yeah. of them are pretty yeah. silly because um, I think we were always market or a little bit above, mm-hmm. um, which which is fine. Uh, I think there's something to be said about paying people more uh, because it does not cost you more at the end very often. So you know that was that was our philosophy too. But that turnover, as you said, is is key. Um, you know, that's why uh, I think, you know, when you take care of your people the way we did and you invest in them, I think that's really the most important thing. And those millennials always talk about, mm-hmm. well, how do I get better? Is the company going to invest in me? Those are legitimate questions. Yes, yes. And we did early on, you know, with a lot of training that cost us millions and millions, but people saw it. If they didn't, we reminded them every year at review time, mm-hmm. hey, you know, this is what we've invested in you. How do you feel? What else do you think that's, we can that, do? And that's a great point. That communication, when you're investing in your team, to, to let them know that this was a cost to invest in that degree that you got while you're working here and, yeah. and so on. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I, I, I believe in this millennial generation. I think the Y generation is even is also, also very strong. And when I say this, I believe if you provide the right the right culture that mm-hmm. they love being a part of, they're not looking for the next dollar. They're, they they want to be in a, 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 a place that where there, there's a why. Why you know why am I here? What's the reason? Well, if right. you, if your business is, is is philanthropic and does cool things to give back to the communities they serve, if if you're if you're relationship oriented and you and you really you feel it's, it feels like a family atmosphere, mm-hmm. I believe the millennials and the Y generation are going to reward you with more longevity. Than our past generations, in my opinion, right? right. I just I, I feel that anyway, and, and we're we're finding this out in the last you know seven eight years because uh, we're because we're 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 loaded up with millennials, and we continue to hire more. And, and I tell you what, as long as you create the the, the right culture, and I, and I think we've we've got it, and we're we're proud to say we've got it. You know, we've got amazing team members here today because of it. So, I think I think you just got to figure out what's what you know what's the why. Why do they want you know why do they want to be in your company right. instead of somebody else's? Uh, no, that's true. Well, I mean, you know, I used to have 2,200 employees. Actually, 3,500 at Robinson. Wow. I, I don't have 
I don't have one today. <laughs> I'm about to ask you. <laughs> Unlike you, I don't have any employees. Well, let's talk about this. You're, you're doing cool stuff. I mean, I want to get into that. There's man. a couple of cool things you got to yeah. get into. Number one, you're building a beautiful building that I, I saw some pictures of. And I said, man, I, I, if I want to be able to afford to buy a condo in that building someday, and said, you'll, you'll never be able to afford it, Raybine, because we're not selling any condos. <laughs> That's exactly right. Those are luxury <laughs> you, apartments. You could do an apartment, right. maybe, but again, I mean, I'm, I'm, pu- I'm my, putting a penthouse anything. aside for you. Is that right? Yeah. Oh my gosh! You yeah. saw my budget too, right? Yeah, it's forty-five hundred bucks a month. It's not, not a big deal for you. <laughs> it's a beautiful building. It's going to be you. awesome. It's going to be a really you. cool building. Yeah, we're going to have the top-off party actually in a couple of days. I can't wait! I can't yeah. wait. Twenty-fifth floor. That was wow. the last floor. So awesome. And, and where is this building? Good. Seven thirty North Milwaukee in uh, River West. Okay. So that's really. You know, it's the Ogden exit yep. off of 90. It's mm-hmm. Milwaukee, Chicago, and Ogden. Mm-hmm. And uh, across the street, there's a building called Spoke. So, but we're about eight floors uh, taller than they are. And uh, they're a lot wider and they're a lot bigger. They have about 400 apartments. We only have 200, which is plenty for us. But um, so, you know, there's this little cluster that of three, four buildings that will get built right there in River West. Um, but it's funny. It feels like you can see our building from all angles. Yeah. It's great. Uh, you know, from the Ohio ramp, from Ogden, from the highway, from... So we're, we're excited. We, we have a great team, uh, you know, a, a great uh, GC and great developer is, that I've known for a long time. Are you going to do more of these developments or just, just do So this, this is the second one. Second one now. Yeah, okay. the first one was uh, 2501 West Armitage, which has been fully leased for a couple of years. That was 85, 85 units. Okay. This, uh, now I was one of uh, several uh, investors in that building. This one here is, is my building, the one in, oh. in, uh, on Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. I went at it alone, a little crazy. And uh, yeah, we have plans for two more on Van Buren. They'll each be about 200 uh, units. We'll be seeking um, you know, investors uh, for, for, these, for these two buildings. They'll be beautiful. Once you prove you know what the heck you're doing anyway. Right. Uh, you yeah, know, right. the building is still standing. <laughs> it's not like the Tower of Pisa. Yeah. So um, now Tandem builds beautiful stuff. I've known them since about oh, 2006. Yeah. Good company. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I think of you every time I see them pouring that cement. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, any, where's Gary? Any, ex- any exterior stuff, I want it, man. Exterior asphalt or concrete. But so you got the building. Yeah. And then you also, I hear that you have a lot of passion about collecting and restoring European cars. You know, with an accent like this, you got to have. I'm just saying. You just got to have a, a, a couple cool cars. A couple? Uh, one, two, three, ten, whatever. 15, 16. Tell, tell us about eight, your 80. Tell about your, your, your passion. <laughs> 80. No, I'm not. I'm not Richard Driehaus. Tell me about your passion um, for cars, and and, yeah. uh, and we we've been. You know, Cheryl and I have been blessed to be invited a couple of times to your to your this this uh, amazing garage of yours for for, for dinner. It's amazing. Go ahead, you tell. know that? Yeah, that's that's why. One experience it is. Yeah, that's why I built that place. It's really for that. It's you know to have you there and Ray <laughs> and my friends and watch the Super Bowl or you know have board meetings, uh, have drinks, and look over cars that I've collected since uh, probably about 2013 or something, 2012. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, You know, a lot of British stuff, old Jags, Astons, um, some Ferraris, Mercedes. What's your favorite? I have a 1959 DB24 Mm. uh, Aston Martin that's (laughs) pretty sweet. I did the Colorado Grand within a few months ago. Oh, okay. And that's about 1,100 miles in five days. 
and the car made it. <laughs> so, uh, but it, you know, it's a conversation piece, and I love those cars. I, I've, uh, you know, I drive them all, and uh, I make sure they're all in in great shape. So, hopefully, they enjoy being in that place because I take good care of them. And so, but, so uh, like, so like, uh, Ray's got the players' lounge behind his garage, Mahal. Yeah. All right, oh, Stefan. Yeah. Stefan's got an amazing lounge. Would that be the driver's lounge? What do you call that? I mean, it, it, beautiful fireplace. Well, one, I mean, yeah, the kitchen. One of, one of my friend called it one day the car gallery, and it kind of stuck. You know, that's okay. what. Yeah, car that's gallery. what we call it. Okay. But you know, Ray just wanted to one up me, and he, <laughs> and he did very successfully. His guitar place is unbelievable. If you like cars, though. so I haven't been invited. Yeah, yeah you yeah. can't drive those guitars though. No, you can't drive. Them. <laughs> that's the problem. I don't think you'd even let me play one, actually. You know. Well, you know what, you guys. Have an invite oh an that's invite all anytime, i needed to hear anytime oh man that's a blessing yeah the weather you know the minute there is no more salt on the street boom there we go, go. Yep. Oh, that'd be awesome. yeah that's all that's all it takes yeah, this place is cool and uh thank you you know what, what's your plan what do you want to do with, uh, with that space in the long run just you know the same i mean what's good is that it uh forces me to be disciplined mm-hmm. i can't have more than 16 cars in there so i don't <laughs> If I want to buy another one, I have to sell one. Oh, okay. And uh, I refuse to continue to to buy cars and and stick them yeah, here and there. Yeah, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. want to do that anymore. Yeah, um, these are all beautiful, but they're all drivers. Yeah, they're all drivers, and you know, a couple would be uh, concours d'élégance type cars. You know, what would you just say? Uh, concours d'élégance. Yeah. That's uh, that's a car show. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, yeah, there are lots of concours d'élégance around. But, uh, See, I, just the way you say I it. can't stand guys like this, you know, you know Q? I mean, <laughs> girls just want to sit, sit around and listen to this guy talk, right? I mean, <laughs> what do we got? See, I, like I said, I, I tried I tried um, French, and I did it in high school, and I forgot it. After well, the, well, you, the, you can say bonjour. I can say bonjour, je m'appelle, Quentin. Yeah, okay, well, that's it. Q, Q, what Q, else do you, you need? You got a little of that, man. <laughs> wow. Yeah, hey, that, I, you, petite, I think you're just, ahead of Gary you, there. You got me excited. I can't say that. I'm not even going to try. I can barely speak the only language I, <laughs> language I know. <laughs> but, hey, uh, you know, what? Uh, when, when, uh, when, you know, when I think of this, though, this, this garage and things you could do, it would be so fun, right? You know, I know you want to do some fundraisers once in a while down yep. there and stuff. You could do so many cool things for the community and, yeah. and stuff. It's going to be a blast to watch that happen. Yeah, and I, and I do. I haven't really done anything yet there uh, for fundraisers, but, you know, I – work with St. Ignatius where my kids went to school mm-hmm. and uh, the Catholic Church and all that. So I think the day will come when, you know, I host events there for that purpose. Sure. So that's uh, awesome. You know, um, be you know one, one thing I always believed and my dad kind of taught me, my dad was always a cat is still always a cash guy. He doesn't have debt on anything. He, mm-hmm. he tries to buy everything with cash. Doesn't he's very patient, doesn't buy anything unless you can pay for it. And so I learned a little of that, not a lot, or I couldn't, you know, couldn't have grown and been as aggressive as I am in business. I take on debt and then I pay it down and, and all that. But yeah. personally, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was always taught don't own a fancy car or buy a fancy car or, or pickup truck or whatever unless you can pay cash for it. You know, mm-hmm. unless it's something you're making money with, you know, why are you financing it, right? And so I, I, I bought my first, for, you know, first nice car and, and uh, I was probably 30, 30 years old or so. And uh, when I could pay cash for a new Corvette. And uh, and it was nice. just exciting as can be, right? Oh, Sounds yeah. like you kind of took that to a crazy, crazy level because it doesn't sound like you had any car collection or anything until you sold your business. Right. And then you went kind of crazy, which is I'm, cool. I'm like you. You know what? It's, bad, it's a bad investment I, otherwise, yeah, right? Yeah, if I can't pay cash for it, I don't buy it. Yeah. It's just I've never, you know, I've never believed in, in credit except, you know, of course, with our business. You know, we had business. a line of credit and 
you know, I think at the most we we borrowed about, I think Chase, you know, Chase was always our bank, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, our line of credit went as high as thirty million bucks. We used all thirty at yep. times yep. Uh, when business was going extremely well, typically. But um, you know, by the time we sold the business, we actually had about sixty million bucks in the bank, which was kind of silly. Um, mm -hmm. But once again, you know, we probably could have bought other companies. Yep. Uh, I think what, what's interesting is, you know, we went from zero to a billion organically. That's why it took thirty years. Yeah. Okay. Thirty-year overnight I'm, success. I'm, I'm sure somebody who's listening would say, "Well, you guys are just a bunch of complete idiots." <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, we were just. International uh, shippers. That's what that. you know. That's what we did, right? Yeah. Uh, we're not the most savvy financiers, but um, you know, if we did that again today, uh, we'd probably leverage you know, more, maybe leverage more, uh, buy some of our smaller competitors, and we could have done what we did maybe in half the time mm -hmm. or even less. But you know, we never built a business to sell it. Right. We we wanted this to be the best place for our people and you know the best shipping company for our customers i mean that was very you know naive and 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 yeah. you know passionate and that's what we wanted to do i mean we just you know selling it was not the goal well and i, and I think every business we build we should be building it uh, to, to create value so it should mm -hmm. be looked upon as something that anybody would want to buy right but yet but you know I'm, I'm very very similar i don't build any business to sell um, we build them all to create value right. and, and, and create opportunities and value for the team members on board. But you mm -hmm. know, the, but they better be valuable on the outside to buy. Otherwise, they're really not that valuable. If every business relies on me to, right. to, to operate it, to be involved day to day, sorry, there's just not a lot of value there. Right? Mm -hmm. I get hit by a, a bus tomorrow and there's no value. Right. Um, compared to building business with great great leaders that can that can lead with or without you or you know creating systems of duplication right. that can they can go on beyond you that's value right right so I mean for I think I think for us to think you know like you did is is the most valuable way to think build this business to where it's going to benefit us and our customers serve our serve the problems that we find in the industries and mm -hmm. solve our customers problems and and you're going to create value you, you know build it to sell it uh, I don't. I, I don't. I mean, I know a lot of people do that. I don't think it's the best, you know, way to, way to think. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, when when the second partner uh, eventually retired, and I I became the second partner uh, out of three, and we brought in Andy, and and uh, you know, my my equity in the business increased, and I became CEO and president and 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 CEO eventually. That was, you know, that was the narrative I shared with with our people. You know, mm -hmm. let's continue to. To, to do the best we can to really enjoy working here, that's really important, mm -hmm. and, and to continue to build a great business. And and I think, you know, anybody could come in my office at any time. You know, I had great relationships because I had been so long. You know, a lot of us grew together mm -hmm. in that company too, which was yeah, really yeah. a lot of fun because, you know, I was 48 when we sold the business. And, you know, a lot of my, the, the members of my management team, you know, were right around the same age. Nice. You'd be friends and for life yeah, with many of them, right? Yeah, yeah, still are, of yeah. course. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm involved in a little business with Ray and mm -hmm. and my partner in that is Emil, who was my CFO uh, and CEO at Phoenix oh, for right. yeah, for 30 years. So, yeah, those relationships will 
last forever. Man, That's awesome. Net worth equals That's your net worth. That's a true statement, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Well, again, it's all about trust, right, Q? I mean, yeah. and when you have people you trust that you know you'd go to battle with at anything you do, right. boy, it's nice to be able to go back to them and say, hey, man, you ready again? Yeah. I got another Let's battle for you. Let's do this one, right? <laughs> Let's do I it. Mean, you know, whether it's your whether it's your team members, right, your 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 counterparts as leaders, your customers, your vendors, all those, all, you know, all those relationships you build, yeah. you know, you hate to see them go by the wayside, right? If you can mm-hmm. do fun things together in the future, why not? Right. Mm-hmm. So I tell you what, I, I you know, I, I am uh, I'm, I'm confident there's going to be a lot of a lot of lessons learned, Q. And I know you wrote down some of them here. Our, our audience is going to be uh, be, be their, their hunger is going to be fed with our buddy Stefan. Man, I'm, <laughs> oh, and they you. probably need to re-listen to this every single time. I have some amazing takeaways for you guys. This this Quentin's true takeaways. These golden nuggets over here by Stefan was amazing. One uh, for all of our startups out, out there, you know, watch your experience expenses as a startup um, is extremely important. But I think one thing you alluded to, um, it's really all about focus and staying in your lane. Do more of what you're great at. And it's extremely key, especially, you know, as you're starting a business or as you have a business. And I'm starting to even see that with Gary. Um, one thing you said, which I thought was pretty key, you know, hire for attitude, train for skill, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, hire slowly, fire swiftly. I think that's um, <clears throat> as we're in a the type of life that we're in now, I think it makes a lot of sense. As you're growing a business, you want the right team, and the, and, um, and and that's extremely important. Uh, but the one thing it, it shows why you have the success in my mind is the mindset that you have when specific when you said, when you take the chance, the worst thing that can happen is to fail. You know, if you think like that, like, hey, what's the worst thing that can happen mm-hmm. right now? Honestly, what, just start back at zero and I can go again. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that's America. You know, and um, take care of your people and invest in them often. But the best takeaway is the fact that Quentin James has an invite to see his garage. So that right there. I let it all. Again, listen to this you podcast. Don't know, you don't know the door. That. You don't know the you door. You do not you know the up. door. You have opened, my friend. I'm just letting you know. Hey, and hey. I appreciate it. Ma, Dad, uh, hey, come here, check this out. Hey, cousin, cousin Louie, Louie, come here, you got to check I ain't this gotta, out. I don't hey, have a cousin Louie, hey, but uh, I got a cousin Lee, Hey, probably, Lee, hey, Lee, know? check out this, Dad. Come here, jump in the Aston Martin with me. Let's take it for a ride. Hey, Stefan, we're back, man. There we go. No, um, hey, April's around the corner. Hey, I'm looking for uh, a Merci, Stefan, Merci. Stefan, you're awesome, buddy. We really, really appreciate you. you being here. And, uh, and, well, thanks and, for having me. It's great. Congratulations, and, and keep you. it going, buddy. You're a young man. You're a young man, and you got a lot of, a lot of road ahead of you. So uh, I Thank can't you. wait to see what's next for you, buddy. And I want to, I want to be uh, part of this network to watch your, you know, watch you kick ass in the future. Well, you want to be in that penthouse. That's what you. Oh, mean, that right? too. That too. Well, okay. for forty five hundred bucks, man, I'm not sure I can swing <laughs> that though. Gee, I'm going to be looking for a deal. And we'll see you all next time on Ditch Digger CEO. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man.
We're blessed to build a business in America Where soldiers fight for our freedom every day Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck Rolling down Highway 31 Lord, I was called Ditch Digger Man Paving for a living and doing the best I can Discovered entrepreneurship, scaling business plans Then I became the CEO Man 